0: If you have a Bible with you, I ask if you would turn to Titus chapter 3. We're continuing in our series through this great little letter, Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you don't have um, a Bible with you, you can use one of the chair Bibles in front of you. This passage is found on page 1058. The title of my message is Before and After Renewal. I have a fascination, I don't know if you have a fascination, with before and after photos. Do you like the sort of before and after phenomenon, whether it's somebody's fitness journey uh, or like home renovation perhaps? We love to see kind of the effect of progress, the result of turning something that's out of shape into something that's more in shape, right? I think we can see this fascination in a lot of the... um, uh, sort of the true life shows that are on HGTV and A&E and all those cable channels where they, they'll take a piece of junk and in the end it's something shiny and new. And it looks like it was when it was new. Or they take an old home that's crumbling down and they rebuild the walls and they add all sorts of neat fixtures and things and make it more livable, right? The the stuff is moved around. The flooring is redone. Uh, or maybe for you it's it's more personal. You like those, uh, you know, you feel inspired or motivated by those before and after selfies on social media, like, yeah, I'm going to look like that in the new year, right? New year, new me kind of thing, right? I don't know if you have that sort of fascination. I'm, I'm convinced that we love all these sorts of things because we actually love the idea of just renewal and renovation. We love those things so much. It's actually something that resonates with us. Seeing the before and after, side by side especially, just hits us in a certain pleasure center. My favorite part of the home reno shows is at the end when they're unveiling the new thing, but they show a picture, right, of the before. So you can see it, like, transforms, and almost the the screen kind of bleeds from the old version of the kitchen to the new version of the kitchen. I just like the the closeness of that, because I forget, right, the new stuff is shown at the end, and I'm like, well, what did it look like before? I didn't remember, you know. We moved this wall, did you? I felt like that wall was there, you know. And then they show that before, and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, it really is totally transformed. We love the possibility of progress. We love the possibility of improvement, of transformation. And it's actually kind of what we get in this passage this morning, in fact. Paul presents a before and after picture of the human spirit. He depicts a contrast, a before and after of the renewal of the gospel. So let's begin reading Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless our time now. Help us to see your son Christ Jesus above all. Help us to cherish him as we ought to. Father, strengthen us in your grace. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, Up to now in Titus, what we've seen is really how Paul, in his instructions and in his counsel to Titus on putting the church in Crete um, in order, he's reminding him over and over again about the transforming power of the gospel. So in chapter 1, verse 5, for instance, he says, says, I left you in Crete to set right what was left undone. And he tells them then what pastors are supposed to be like. And in verse 15 of that chapter, he gives him a before and after picture. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. You have the the contrasting portraits. In chapter 2, he reminds Titus about the effect of sound doctrine on sound living. And in verses 11 through 14, he offers another before and after picture. How the gospel taking root in our lives produces holy living, produces a repentant heart. Before grace appeared, he says, we were lawless. But, he says, we've been redeemed. We have been cleansed. And now in chapter 3, he continues to expand on what holy living looks like. What the redemption of Christ does for sinners who turn to God in faith. The church is a group of sinners who have been remade, renovated, remodeled, so to speak, in the likeness of Christ himself. And the impact of this change has far-reaching effects, not just among Christians, but in the world that Christians inhabit as well. The good works to which Paul is repeatedly exhorting Christians is a result of God's renewing presence in their lives. And so here is his starkest contrasting portrait. There is a very clear before and after in this passage. And I think we have a slide that's actually going to show the before and after Portraits here, before we jump into the expositional outline, I want to give you these sort of two columns that show a before and after. So on the one hand, you have life before renewal. And we see this before picture um, in verse 3 where he says, We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, malicious and envious, hateful, even detesting one another. And then later in verses 9 and 10, he gets more specific. He kind of applies it to Titus's context. How does that sort of spirit then work out in his ministry life? What is he seeing in the churches? There are foolish debates. There is divisiveness and so on. Paul says our way of life before renewal is unprofitable and worthless. But on the other hand, he shows us life after renewal. Renewal. We see the after picture in verses 1 and 2 where he commands submission and obedience, readiness for good works, not slandering people, avoiding fights, being kind and being gentle. And then again later in verse 8, he further exhorts us to being careful to devote ourselves to good works. And Paul then categorizes the after as good and profitable for everyone. So this before and after concept is something actually that Paul does in a lot of his letters and here, it's, it's meant to remind Titus and the church going through Titus's teaching and shepherding that what God is after in our lives is not simply a religious facade. It's not simply a kind of going through the motions. It's a remade identity. It's a transformation of who we are. And so this morning, we're going to examine these before and after pictures, and then we're going to look intently at the renewal that actually gets us from before to after. So here's the first thing that we see when we ponder that before picture. The fleshly life is puny. The fleshly life is puny. Now, what do I mean by the fleshly life? A fleshly life is a life that is driven by what the Scriptures call, in numerous places, the desires of the flesh. What Paul refers to in verse 3 as enslaved by various passions and pleasures. It is a deadness. It's inherited straight from Adam and the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. It is a life dedicated only to self and self-interest. It's it's an inward bent. It is a life that results from an attempt to dethrone God as rightful Lord of our lives and exalt ourselves, our appetites, our instincts, our our inward bent as our our only purpose and our identity and our desire. It's a spiritless life. So it's a fleshly life. and Why is it puny? Well, the fleshly life is puny because it is small-hearted. It is self-involved. It reduces everything down to our own desires, our own interests, our own pleasures. The fleshly life is dedicated only to self. Thus, it is puny compared to the relational robustness, as it were, of the Christian life. It is spiritually it is devoid of the fullness of Christ's reconciling spirit. This is how Paul describes it in verse 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. What I found really interesting about this entire passage really, and kind of the way even the before and afters are, are framed. This is one of the first things that kind of jumped out at me as I was looking at this passage and preparing to preach it is just how focused Paul is on the relational impact of spiritual deadness and spiritual life. So it's not just that in our sin, we are divorced from God. We certainly are. In our sin, we are divorced from God. But here, Paul is connecting the vertical to the horizontal. And this happened in the garden as well. If you remember, when, when, when Adam sinned, that disconnect, the divorce between him and God was certainly there, but it actually had a horizontal impact as well. There was enmity between Adam and Eve, not just between Adam and, and God. So if you remember when the Lord comes and, and, and calls them to account <clears throat> what Adam does, he shifts his blame. He's like, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. You know, she did this. He's trying to heap the, the consequences onto her. And then Eve is doing the same thing. She tries to blame the devil, actually. The devil made me do it, Right. And they're now um, vulnerable to each other. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They don't have this sort of intimacy that they had before when they walked in perfect harmony with the Lord. Once that harmony got disconnected, this harmony got disconnected as well. The vertical impacts the horizontal. So as they're shifting blame, as they're now looking at each other suspiciously in fear, a need for control... The desires are changed, Genesis 3 tells us. The the leadership is corrupted. And Paul is applying that enmity, that relational disconnect, that relational chaos and corruption to this context as well. Before renewal in the fleshly life, we live in malice and envy, in hate for others, detesting them even, he says. In in verse 9, he kind of returns to this idea, and again, he makes it more specific. He says, this results in foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law. This verse is giving us some specific um, examples of kind of the puny-hearted fleshliness of verse 3. What was happening in the church of Titus's day? It's not entirely different, actually, than the divisive sins that plague our churches today. Foolish debates, right? Now, there are certainly debates worth having, and we are called in the Scriptures to contend for the faith. We're called to promote sound doctrine, and we're called to defend the gospel. But so often, don't we, 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 we use those labels sometimes to, to cover up our penchant for getting bogged down in theological battles that aren't really rising to the central importance of the gospel we elevate kind of personal theories. We elevate kind of soapbox interests over harmony with our brothers and sisters. We engage in conflict with others on things that don't eternally matter. Paul mentions genealogies, and you may be thinking, what's wrong with genealogy? I was on, you know, 23 Me. I sent my DNA in, and I'm trying to find Is that sinful? Well, there's something specific that's taking place. It has nothing to do with like, just trying to figure out you know, your family tree and charting out your lineage and all those sorts of things. In, in Titus' context, what Paul is likely referring to um, has to do with people who are kind of claiming a superiority over others based on tracing their bloodlines, probably back to certain patriarchs or, or other religious leaders. It certainly could connect today to kind of racial superiority um, but even even within some like denominational traditions, right? It might happen today where some claim superiority based on tracing their tradition further back than other traditions, or something like that. Um, but it can also just represent a kind of elevating theological minutia over theological imperatives. For Titus's church—he may be dealing with people who are constantly arguing over genealogies and who has the better bloodline and who could, who they can trace their you know lineage back to—and it's constantly you know causing conflict. Um, I grew up in churches where there was a whole lot of like looking at charts, right, eschatological charts and the timings of things and arguing over the timing of this, that, and the other thing. We all agreed Christ is returning, and it wasn't as if we couldn't have a conversation or even a debate about the timing of that. But man, that stuff just got pushed so you know, far up into um, you know, the, the idea of first order importance that sometimes those debates came to where you know, I, I, I think you see the timing differently than me. You're, you're actually not as spiritual as me. Right? You, don't, you don't see the Bible as well as I see the Bible. These quarrels and disputes about the law are, are things that Titus had to contend with and, and we do as well. Some of these are just examples of different kinds of legalism. Others are just sort of a, a, a pettiness and a, a focus on nitpicky things. In a way, Paul is implicitly urging um, what we might call today a kind of theological triage. And so I'm just going to briefly kind of outline what theological triage is. This isn't the main point of the sermon, but it's probably important for us to kind of sort through these things. Theological triage is as it sounds, it's, it's it's related to the idea of triage, you know, medical triage, right? So if you're working in an, um, an emergency room or maybe even like on the battlefield or something, and there are injuries, there are emergencies, as people come in, those who are working and trying to be you know, healing and comfort, they're having to prioritize in order of the greatest need. What is life-threatening and what isn't? So if two people come into an emergency room, one has a severe headache, that's a big deal, that's painful. We don't like severe headaches. But someone else comes in with like a gunshot wound or something that was, you know, they're bleeding out, Triage would say, let's treat the gunshot wound Vic, you know, person before we do the headache. They're trying to put orders of importance. It's, it's not saying that the headache is, is you know, unimportant, like we don't care about that. They're just doing triage. What do we need to look at first? What do we need to pay attention to first? So theological triage is like that as well. And it basically um, presents the framework of saying there are first order, second order, and third order doctrines. First order doctrines, right, are the things that make us Christian. There are things that are necessary. You, you must believe these to actually be a genuine Christian. So it would in, in include things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it would include things like the incarnation, the dual nature of, 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 of Christ. It would include things like the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and salvation by grace, and, and, and things like that. Things that if you waffle on that or compromise on that, you're actually compromising Your Christian faith, the veracity of your profession of faith. Now, second order things are not unimportant. In fact, they're very important, but they're second order. And second order doctrines are things that really impact our ability to fellowship with each other. They provide the basis not of our Christian faith, but of our covenanting as congregations. So they would include things like um, views of baptism, right? We can acknowledge that our Presbyterian uh, friends, our brothers and sisters in the faith, we can't do church with them because we differ on on baptism and the object of baptism. Um, Some who are egalitarian in in, in their um, view of uh, women's roles in the church and in the home. We can say we disagree, we can't do church together because we're a complementarian church. But we can acknowledge that we have egalitarian friends who are genuine believers. It doesn't compromise their ability Uh, You know, we want to have that debate, but we don't go so far as to question their salvation. Forms of church governance, church polity, things like that. Things that are important, we see them spelled out in the scriptures, perhaps even clearly. But we can acknowledge that other believers could see these things differently. We can affirm their faith while saying, we probably can't covenant in the same congregation together. But we can affirm the credibility of your profession of faith, because we all agree on those first order doctrines. The third order is, again, not unimportant, but they're the sort of things that within one church we can kind of disagree on. Um, some churches will take third order and, and, and put them in the second order, and that, I think on a case-by-case basis that might be okay. Churches that build their identity around certain third order um, sorts of things. But a lot of churches, like ours for instance, there's a lot of third order things that we say, that's third order. We can actually have multiple views within the same congregation. And this would include things like the timing of the Lord's return. Are you pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill? Are you you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Are you pan-millennial? You know, all those sorts of things. Um, If you don't know what that means, it means it's all going to pan out in the end. You ever heard that? I think it's kind of a cop-out. But we can have that debate charitably because we agree the Lord's returning. That's a first-order doctrine. But we can disagree on the timing of that and still fellowship together. We can still expect and hope in the Lord's blessed return. We know that he's going to come back. We know he's going to vanquish sin from the earth. We know he's going to establish his king, you know, consummate his kingdom on the earth. We believe in a new heavens and a new earth. We believe in the bodily resurrection. We can believe in all of that. And we can quibble. We can have a conversation about all the minutia and the details within that. Um, and, and, and that's great because we can still affirm the brotherhood and sisterhood of each other. There are some other things that fall into, you know, the third order doctrines. It's almost like a junk drawer of kind of theological perspectives. Uh, for a lot of us, the Calvinism, Arminianism, or the in-between-isms, whatever, you know, I'm not one or the other, I'm kind of in-between, You know, all of that, I, I, I think those are third order sorts of things. It doesn't mean I think they're unimportant. I you know, certainly have uh, a perspective there, and I'd be glad to tell you about it, but it's not as important to me as telling you about Jesus and telling you about the grace of Jesus. The better that we, you and I do theological triage, the better we'll get along with each other. It just makes sense, actually. If we can actually sort out first order, second order, and third order and stop kind of conflating those things together, kind of pancaking the whole thing, we'll actually get along better with each other. It only makes sense. But when we fail to do that, when we do conflate third and second order with first order doctrines, we end up condemning people wrongly. And a healthy church, even a healthy church actually, can become infected with quarrels and division when we don't do theological triage well. In verse 10, Paul even gives an example of a a church discipline case. There's there's a person who is sowing division. And the root word there um, for divisiveness is actually where we get the word heretic. So heresy divides, certainly. And this divisiveness that Paul condemns is itself heretical. It's a good prompt for us to kind of do a gut check as we read this. Ask ourselves, in what ways... Are we letting preoccupation with secondary things obscure not just our devotion to the gospel, but also our love for people, our love for the church? In what ways am I elevating my pet theological interests over my ability to love you and to care about you, especially if you think differently than I do? We might feel divided in our hearts because you know, others don't share the same urgency, about peripheral matters that we do? Is it possible that this division, this preoccupation, this low-grade anger or suspicion that we feel is a result of taking our eyes off the good news? The examples that Paul gives in verse 9 is a direct result of the state described in verse 3. It's a picture of behavior that arises from the sinful flesh. And this fleshly life is puny in so many ways. It's loveless. It has a poverty of spirit. There is a gracelessness there. It is small-hearted. It is addicted to tension and drama and conflict. You know people like this? Like, they don't know what to do with themselves if they're not engaged in drama, right? Got real quiet thinking of somebody. Maybe it's you, right? The fleshly life is, is it, it's grinchy. <laughs> it's coming to steal our joy, A life set on the flesh, walking by the flesh, to borrow a phrase from Galatians, is relationally puny. Just look again at the before picture here. Do you know those people who can't seem to live without stirring up conflict? This list describes them so well, doesn't it? Some people are bored without conflict, and I think it's because they're bored with the gospel. Some people just love to fight. A few weeks ago, um, one of the last times I preached, I uh, shared an illustration from the movie 1917. There's another moment in that film, I think, that resonates um, as well for today's topic. So if you remember, there was a, um, a British, uh, this is during World War I, and there's a British regiment that is wanting to warn a sister regiment across enemy lines that there's an ambush waiting for them, that they shouldn't move forward, they will surely be killed. The whole, the whole lot of them will be slaughtered. And they don't know that's coming, so they're trying to send word to them to warn them. And so there's two guys that are right, you know, picked out to kind of run across the danger. Basically, it's a suicide mission. Get across enemy lines to deliver the warning to the other British regiment, to stand down. Don't move forward. It's, it's certain death. And there's a, 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 it's a very short moment, but when the two men are given the orders, go take these orders to the other regiment across the way. They're told, make sure there are witnesses, because the commander of the other regiment, um, they say, is a man who just loves to fight. He says, make sure there are witnesses, because some men just love to fight. In other words, if there's not someone else to see, if these insubordinates show up and go, here are orders, and the guy looks at it, he could disregard Knowing certain death, he can disregard it, because he just he's itching to fight. He's itching for battle, no matter the cost. I mean, that's a, a you know, battlefield analogy, but it's something that happens in our own hearts, in our own lives very often, isn't it? About 12 years or so ago, I was embroiled in an online controversy against my will. I had no idea that I was stepping into this sort of thing. Um, and it was essentially, I was sharing a quote from another author, um, and I didn't, there was no commentary of my own. I was just sharing this quote that I thought was rather interesting. I was not reading it the way a lot of other people read it, which was very offensively. And there were a lot of insinuations and assumptions made about my own perspective, particularly about women. So there were all kinds of claims about how I felt about women, what I think about women, and and it was all evidenced by this quote. And at first, I was like, how are they even getting this from the quote? But then even after I could kind of see their perspective, oh, I I guess I could see how you could read it that way. Then I began to say, but I don't believe that. I, I didn't read it that way, and I'm trying to defend myself. Well, the person who is the origin of the quote, of course, he's involved in this debate as well. And what I came to realize as we were sort of on the same side, so to speak, is that he was eating it up. Like, he loved it. It didn't help. I'm probably tipping my hand here a little bit. We have the same last name. So some people would write, Wilson says, da 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 and it's something crazy the other Wilson said, but people thought it was this Wilson And so every day I wake up and there's like a fire going on online. And every day I'm bringing water to it. The other guy's bringing gasoline. And we're trying to pour them on the same thing. He's doing multiple posts. He's doubling down. He's saying, yeah, of course I believe that, you know, all these sorts of things. Now, behind the scenes, we're corresponding privately. I'm trying to say to him, this is not my thing. Like, I don't. I wasn't looking for this. Now that I'm in it, I don't want to be in it. I'm, I'd like to extricate myself from it. And he said something that was very revealing to me. He said, Jared, whenever this happens, this is a promotion. And because of that statement, and because of his behavior, I came to learn, oh, this guy loves to fight. It's not just that he's willing to fight, right? It's, it's cowardice to be unwilling to fight, especially when the fights are necessary, and we'll talk about that in a little moment. But it is sinful to love to fight, to to thrive on fighting. The Bible forbids, for instance, pastors from being quarrelsome. And it categorizes quarrels for all people as being evidence of a fleshly life. We shouldn't be afraid of fighting for the right things. But people who love to fight, who thrive on conflict, are people who are not walking in the renewing spirit of Jesus. So what's the alternative? Well, there's the after picture, which I've categorized this way. The Christian life is peaceable. The Christian life is peaceable. The fleshly life is puny. The Christian life is peaceable. Paul urges Timothy to call them, to remind the church to verses 1 and 2, submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, (laughs) to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now, he begins with rulers and authorities. This, to me, is one of the most provocative parts of the whole passage because um, the church at this time exists within a society that is run by a pagan government. So if you think submitting and obeying to government today is a hard pill to swallow, imagine being told to submit to and obey a government built explicitly, not just implicitly, but explicitly around pagan idol worship. It's important as we read passages like these, and there's others throughout the scriptures, about citizenship in the earth on behalf of Christians, that Paul is not telling us to divide our allegiance between God and government. He's telling us that total allegiance to God creates peaceable citizenship. He's not saying submission to government is absolute, right? Any more than um, Peter when he says honor the emperor means that you're to worship the emperor. Right, um, commenting on um, this verse, Titus 3.1, Robert Yarborough writes, Paul is not blindly ordering Titus to enforce lockstep adherence to civil rule no matter what. He's confirming that under conditions like those in Crete at this time, Christians should be exemplary subjects, even in a pagan social order. If we are commanded, brothers and sisters, if we are commanded by any government to do things that would constitute disobedience to God, we are obligated to disobey the government. But so much as it depends on us, so long as we are not compromising our faith, we are to be a peaceable people, even in places that are hostile to our faith. Now, why? Why? It's not very much in fashion to think this way today. I think primarily... Because it demonstrates the peace of our knowing our true citizenship. Knowing that our real citizenship is in heaven. That our true king is the prince of peace. Living as if the king of kings reigns and rules over all is how we bear witness to the security and the freedom that we have in him. An unsubmissive, insubordinate spirit is how people who are enslaved to their passions live. It's the result of being controlled by fear and controlled by anger and controlled by pride. But Paul doesn't just commend peaceability as governmental citizens. He expands this peaceability to all people. The relationality of verses 1 and 2 is about bearing witness through our love for our neighbor, just as Christ has commanded us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the vertical expressed in the horizontal. Equating love for neighbor as evidence of worship of God himself. In verse 8, Paul tells Titus, insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says, these are good and profitable for everyone. Just as he says in verse 2 that this peaceability is to be our posture to all people, here he says this devotion to good works is for everyone. What is the portrait here? It's a picture of total renovation. This is a total transformation from the before image. It's a picture of renewal, to use the language of verse 5. The Christian life is peaceable because it displays a life that has been made new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. In 1 Corinthians 6, after Paul gives a list of the kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, sexually immoral and idolaters and homosexuals and thieves and revilers, etc. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul gives a contrast between the works of the flesh and walking by the Spirit. And Galatians is actually a nice little background text for this letter to Titus, um, not just because there is in the background kind of the combating of false teaching that's threatening the church, but because Paul actually mentions Titus in that letter. And he mentions Titus, it would seem, at least implicitly, as sort of an example of the authenticity of his own gospel ministry. Titus has been a co-worker of Paul's, but he was likely led to Jesus by Paul as a result of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And he is presented in Galatians as kind of a a walking after picture. He brought Titus with him when he went to see the important apostles, right? Titus is a younger guy, not necessarily young perhaps at the time of this letter, but younger than Paul, a Gentile who had come out of paganism. He heard the good news of Jesus and his whole life was rearranged. He went from being submerged in an idolatrous culture to becoming a missionary alongside the Apostle Paul to that very culture. Submission to rulers and authorities. Obedience. Ready for every good work. Slandering no one. Avoiding fighting. Being kind. Always showing gentleness to all people. That's not just a set of new behaviors. That's being a new person. That's why Jesus calls this transformation being born again. It's not just turning over a new leaf. It's, it's a new birth. It's being a different person. In my youth, I was um, heavily uh, inspired by and, and encouraged by uh, the music of Keith Green. Probably some of you older saints may recall Keith Green. Maybe some of you younger ones as well. Um, Keith Green was somewhat before my time. He, he actually died um, at a fairly young age himself in a plane crash when I was just a child. But in my high school years, um, I was introduced to his, his music. Um, and he was a radical guy. And eventually, I was so moved by his music. It was just a force of nature. If you're not familiar, um, he's kind of the, one of the forerunners of kind of the contemporary Christian music scene actually came out of the Jesus movement in the 1970s, early 80s. Um, his music is even different than a lot of kind of the early... CCM type stuff as well, explicitly biblical, explicitly directed to God, wasn't trying to like, you know, use the pronouns where people would be like, is he talking about his girlfriend or is he talking about Jesus? You know, that's right. Very explicitly talking about God, Uh, a very radical guy. So I was so moved by that. I wanted to know more about his story. So I picked up this book. This is one of my favorite books since I was a kid. No Compromise, which is the biography written by his widow. Um, uh, uh, Melody Green um, about how he came to know Jesus and it's a radical transformation Keith Green grew up in a kind of um, uptight family and and like a lot of young people did in the late 60s and 70s uh, went out to California to live free and he did all the things uh, that hippie culture told him, this is what you do to be enlightened to finally find inner peace, all these sorts of things, so he got involved in drugs and the occult and uh, um, you know, free love, which isn't free or love, right? All those sorts of things. Um, but he got engaged in all that sort of deal. And then some guys came around at this time who started telling him about Jesus. And Keith can kind of like Jesus the way that most hippies like Jesus, right? He tells tell everybody to love each other. He's all about peace and joy and that sort of thing. Keith kind of got interested in Jesus, but he wanted to put Jesus along with all the other kind of religious stuff and religious ideas and, and the universe and all these sorts of things. And so one day, he came to experience the new birth. There were friends who, who, who stuck with him and kept reminding him of the good news. And Keith Green was not a perfect theologian, even years after his salvation. There's, I, we, I have some concerns about his theology, uh, you know, some of the specifics of it. Uh, but in the beginning, especially, he didn't know all the, all the theology, but he came to believe that, uh, that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for his sins, and that Jesus rose again, and he thought, this is incredible. And there was a total transformation of his life. The radicality he experienced as a before picture became the radicality in the after picture. And um, some of the things that that um, you know Green did as he was reading through the Bible is everything that he saw that would convict him. He immediately wanted to be obedient to. So he and Melody, before they were married, were living together and of course engaging in premarital sex and. Um, after his conversion, Keith comes across you know, Bible verses, and one day he says to Melody, Hey, I've been reading the Bible. I think premarital sex is wrong. She says, What are you talking about? She's not a believer yet. He goes, Yeah, I think it's wrong. I don't think we should do it. We need to, we need to stop until we're married. For him, it was just, This is what we do. We're just going to be obedient. The Bible says it. We're going to do it. And he just kept following these steps over and over and over again. Even after his conversion, he was such a radical believer, so totally transformed um, they were um, opening their home to the homeless and, 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 um, you know, uh, runaway teenagers, like folks on the streets who needed a place to stay. They would come in. You know, Keith would, you know, lead them to the Lord. Eventually, baptize them in the bathtub. We kind of quibble with that polity here, but you know, yeah. we appreciate the, the zeal, we appreciate the enthusiasm, those sorts of things. Um, he just, it was a radical transformation to the point that actually he began to be somewhat abrasive even to his Christian friends. So as Keith's music career began to take off, he thought, it, I just, this doesn't feel right. I feel convicted about making money off of my music. And so he began to um, not charge for concerts or for his tapes, you know, and for his, his, uh, for his albums. And he would even say to his other like, musician friends, like, you shouldn't charge for your music. And it kind of rubbed people the wrong way. In fact, I, I have a cassette tape from his, uh, so you want to go back to Egypt album. And on the tape, it says, this may not be sold. Like, Whoa. That's pretty radical. Well, in No Compromise, uh, Melody shares some of the journal entries from Keith throughout this period, before conversion and even after. And I wanted to read this one to you. Um, this comes fairly early, actually, um, after his conversion. But it's, it, it speaks to something transformative that's a little different than just changing all of your behavior. Going from being a radical hippie to being a radical religious person. This is what um, Keith wrote. He says, Please, Lord... Keep me sensitive to the spiritual needs of those who need your salvation. People can get wary of my company if I go off the deep end and only witness from my plane. He puts plane in quotes as if he's kind of above everybody. Instead of going to where they are and showing them I care for them individually. He says, Lord, change me. Get rid of my radical tendency. Help me control my overwhelming enthusiasm. He says, make me unselfish, unproud, Quiet and full of humility and gentleness. Father, I love you. You showed your gift to me, Jesus. What's really fascinating about the prayer is even in the midst of his total spiritual renovation, Keith Green was sensitive to his need to change from the inside out. Not just his behaviors, but his character, his heart. For some of us who grew up in Christian homes, in Christian churches... Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to see a major difference between ourself before Jesus and ourself after Jesus. Especially if the things that we were enslaved to before Jesus um, are more along the lines of kind of religiosity and self-righteousness. The picture is not as stark, it's, it would seem. For those who didn't grow up in a Christian family, who, who, who maybe grew up with more obvious patterns of sin, more visible patterns of sin, perhaps we should say the new life in Christ may look a lot more stark. The repentance might look a little more dramatic or a lot more dramatic. But no matter your background, no matter your passion, no matter your pleasure, no matter if you're churchy or unchurchy or nonchurchy, when you are changed by God, you're not who you used to be. No Christian is perfect, but every Christian should be able to say, in some way, that's how I used to be. Right? Right? And how I used to be maybe different from how you used to be. Those pictures may be different, but we should be able to say, because of Christ, I'm no longer X, Y, Z. I'm not what I ought to be, but praise God, I'm not what I was. C.S. Lewis once made a joke, too, about the Christians we find really hard to be around, abrasive Christians, disagreeable Christians. He said, uh, imagine what they would be like without Christ. You can have some grace for those to think, man, they're not what they ought to be, but praise God, they're probably not what they were, right? The Lord's still working on them. In Galatians, Paul mentions that he would not subject the Gentile Titus to circumcision. Now, why? I mean, he has Timothy, you know, become circumcised. Why not Titus? I think it has to do a lot with Titus's missional context, the people he's ministering to but also because Christianity is not based on outward conformity to religious traditions. It's based on an inward change that does result in Christ-like behavior. There is undoubtedly behavioral change that results from this inward character change, yes. But what actually makes the difference? What's between the pictures? How do you go from before to after. That's what's missing from so many of these shows and the especially on social media, the before and after on on Instagram, right? You see the junky car in one picture and then the shiny souped up ride in the next picture. You see the dingy falling down house in one picture and the spacious fancy version in the next. You see the out of shape person in the first picture, right? You know, coming from a walking before picture, I resonate with those. I'm like, "Hey, don't look too bad. Don't get too down on yourself." All right? And then you swipe, and you see Tyler Sikora, and you're like, that's what I want to look like that, actually. (laughs) It's all right. You're like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to look like that. If only it were as easy as swiping, right? We don't see what comes between. The work, the effort that actually goes into the transformation, the grinders and the sandblasters. The sledgehammers, the crowbars, the grueling workouts, restrictive diets, the sweat, the effort, the pain, the time. And so one would expect that in the gap between the fleshly life and the Christian life, you'd find a lot of theological sweat equity, a long-term kind of religiousization of people, some kind of pulling oneself up by spiritual bootstraps, white-knuckling religiously, that's what we would expect. That's what the world would expect. But they'd be wrong. Because in place of a sinner's hard work, we find instead the work of Christ, the transforming kindness of God. This is my third and final point. The Savior's life is powerful. The Savior's life is powerful. Fleshly life is puny. Christian life is peaceable. How do you get from one to the other? A powerful Savior. You'll notice the substance of this passage is not in the before or after picture; it's on the in between. If you have your Bible open, you can actually see, right, the in between there. And while there are contrasting portraits of fleshliness and Christ likeness in verses one through three and verses eight through eleven, those two sections are like bookends to what we see in verses four through seven—a beautiful exposition of the good news. Titus three one through eleven is literally a gospel-centered passage. The gospel is right there in the middle of these imperatives. It's like it was designed for me, right? I don't know. Gospel-centered guy. What comes between the before and the after? Verse 4. But the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. This intervention of the gospel. But the kindness. It's similar to what happens in Ephesians 2. Paul elaborates on just how dead sinners are apart from Christ. And then he just suddenly exclaims, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. Both there and here, the proclamation of the gospel serves as a kind of radical intervention, a a radical interruption of business as usual. We're minding our own business, we're going our own way, then bam, the good news shows up. It's kind of like Paul's own conversion, right, on the road to Damascus. He, he, he thinks he's worshiping God. He thinks he's following God. He's just minding his own business, and suddenly he's stepped into the bear trap of grace. Christ hijacks him. In fact, he uses that language later when he talks about it. I was laid hold of. Like, I was, I was waylaid. I was hijacked. In fact, the Greek word here in verse 4 that is translated appeared is where we get the word epiphany from. You know what what, uh, an epiphany is? It's not an appearance like you see something ordinary or routine. It's a sudden enlightenment, a a sudden vision that changes everything. Like the discovery of gravity, right? The discovery of fire. That's an epiphany. And Paul uses the same word in chapter 2, verse 11. It's the epiphany of grace, he says there, that inspires holy living. God's not uninterested in our living holy lives, walking upright, being godly. How does that come about? Paul says, the epiphany of grace. That's what trains us in the CSB, instructs us. No ordinary religious idea is going to make this difference. We need an epiphany like the gospel. There is no hope for a puny life apart from a, a gigantically glorious Savior. There is no engine for the devotion to good works of the Christian life apart from the power of Christ himself, his grace, his presence, his spirit. Verse 5, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Do you want power? Do you want power? Who couldn't use some power? On Sunday morning, on Monday morning, it doesn't come from wrestling and wrangling in our flesh. It doesn't come from our own strength. It comes, verse 7, from being an heir of God, a co-heir with Jesus, so that by grace you receive the riches of his grace a royal priesthood, a seating with Christ in the heavenly places. There is no more powerful position than to be saved by and united to Jesus himself. We are saved not by works of righteousness that we do, but according to God's mercy. Out of his own eternal love, he takes mercy on sinners. And according to this mercy, what does he do with them? He washes us, verse five says. He regenerates us. He renews us. He gives us new birth. He makes us new. How does he do that? By pouring his actual self, his Holy Spirit, onto us and into us abundantly, Paul says, through the gift of Jesus Christ. His powerful life is given to us. His powerful life, spiritually speaking, is put into us. Apart from Jesus, every person stands condemned in their sins, enslaved to passions and pleasures, in the chains of a puny, fleshly life. But God, but God, in his kindness, has sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die a death on a cross that we deserve to die, and to rise again on the third day, all to show love for sinners and to save them from their sins. If you want a peaceable life, you need a powerful Savior. That powerful Savior's name is Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what you've done, where you've been, how you've lived, even up until this very morning. None of that is a hindrance to the Son of God. You are not a bigger sinner than He is a Savior. If you will turn from your sins and put your faith in Him, even this very morning, you will have his peace planted in your heart. You will receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Why wouldn't anybody want that? If you're tired of living a puny, fleshly life, enslaved to sin, if you're tired of running away from God, if you're just worn out from the weight of a spiritually dead life, you can be changed right now. If you keep going the way you're going, it's actually only going to get worse. You can't climb your way out of it. There's no amount of grit you can pour into that before and after picture. Those who remain dead in their sins will in the end receive the condemnation that sin deserves. But grace has appeared. The Savior's life is powerful and he will give you his powerful life if you will turn to him. Because he has given his powerful life on the cross to set sinners free. This is the good news. That God loves sinners and saves them by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this good news is so precious, it's worth staking everything on. It's worth centering everything around, the bookends of our life. You want to protect peace in your life and in the church? Protect the gospel. Now, some of this focus might seem discordant with what we see in verses 10 and 11. Paul is urging a relational kindness, avoiding fighting, keeping peace, and then he says, Kick guys like that out of the church. Hold on, Paul. It sounds a little rough. Is church discipline at odds with the peaceability of the Christian life? When done biblically, the answer is no. When it is carried out to protect the preciousness and the credibility of the gospel. A number of years ago, I had to kick a heretic out of my church in Vermont. Um, He was not a member, so the process was much more streamlined. (laughs) <laughs> of doing that. This fellow showed up one Sunday. His name was Richard, and um, he began to t- you know, attend not just a service, but Sunday school class and men's discipleship group, and, which is great. You know, we welcome everybody. You don't even have to believe what we believe to attend. But it became clear as Richard began to share more and more in uh, times of conversation um, that he wasn't just a seeker, he actually was a man on a mission. And he had a particular theology. He had a oneness Pentecostal background, which one of the most distinguished things from that uh, um, religion is they deny the Trinity. They deny that God exists fully in three persons. So it's not Christian. It's actually heretical. And Now, we let heretics come to our church as well, but um, he's kind of on my radar now because he's sharing more and more of this false teaching in conversational settings and study settings, and then I began to notice, because it's a pastor's job to notice things, that he had a habit during Sunday mornings of cornering certain people and, and talking to them, and I would try to get close enough or ask someone who's close enough to what they were talking about, and it was always around these sort of teachings, not just a denial of the Trinity, but also um, dietary law and different things like that, And there was something I think spiritual, in the realm of spiritual warfare happening too, because Richard had this knack somehow of being able to single out people who were somewhat immature in their faith. It wasn't like he would corner one of the elders to have this conversation. It was usually folks who were either newer believers or just people who weren't as totally firm. Somehow he had an instinct for people who were vulnerable. And so I just took him aside one day and said, look, Richard, you're welcome to attend church here. Um, you're, you know, you're welcome to come and, and you know hear all we have to say, but I, I can't have you teaching people. Like what you're doing is teaching. He's like, oh, I'm just having a conversation. I said, well, that's fine. I'm not saying you can't talk to anybody. I'm just saying the kind of things that you're doing is is a kind of teaching, and and I just we just can't have that because we don't believe those things, and actually we find those things antithetical to what we believe. Um, and that's and that's not being a good guest on the one hand. So I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be as gentle as I can. Richard says, I, I understand. I I won't do that next week. Richard's doing the same thing all over again. So I take my side. I said, you know, I'm a little more, I kind of ratchet up a little more of the sternness, right? I said, Richard, I, we had this conversation. I just heard from somebody that you were talking to, um, you know, somebody about the, the Trinity and how it's not in the Bible and all these sorts of things. And like I've told you before, we, we, you can't talk like that here. And, um, you know, so you, you you need to stop, you know. You, you're welcome to come, but you, you can't have those, you, you can't be teaching in our church. Oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know that's what I was doing, Uh, This goes on for a little while. I wish I had just stopped at two warnings, right? I kind of gave him a little bit of a leash and he just wouldn't stop. He was a man on a mission. So finally, one Sunday, I'm preaching from the gospel of Mark and we're in the passage where it says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean, which really wasn't even the point of the sermon. It was just in the text. And so I reference it and I talk about the new covenant. I talk about, you know, I made some kind of joke about, isn't it great that as Christians, you know, because of Christ, we can eat shrimp and bacon and Bacon-wrapped shrimp and those sorts of things, you know. And everyone laughed just like you guys are laughing, and inside you're like, praise God, we can actually, you know. It wasn't the point, but it was just like a little illustrative type thing. And, and, and then I'm done. And as soon as we're done, like at our, at our church, like, um, I, you know, finish preaching, we pray, we sing a final hymn together, then we, we sing the doxology together, and then, you know, I, um, I issue a blessing, and then I come down. Before I could even come down the steps... Richard, who was sitting on the front row, comes right up, and he meets me. And he's standing right below me on the stage. He looks up at my face, and he goes, not blood sausages. And like you, I went, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? I thought we just sang the doxology, not blood sausages. I, I'm not sure. And so, and I just preached, so I'm like a little tired, too. And I'm like, you know, um, my brain's worried. And I'm like, oh, he's talking about the stuff Jesus declared all foods clean. And he's actually, so he's contradicting me when I say, what Jesus said, and actually he's contradicting Jesus <laughs> to say that. And it just dawned on me in that moment, the epiphany I had was, this guy's a wolf. He's not just a seeker or an unbeliever who has shown up and he's visiting. He's, he's, a he's a threat to our church. And just kind of a Papa Bear moment, I just, I stood up from crouching over to listen to him. And I said, Richard, get your stuff and get out. And he kind of stumbled back, eyes got big. Now, what happened as soon as I did this, was right after the service, y'all. I mean, it's like literally 30 seconds after the service has ended. So there's still people kind of milling around. We have a big fellowship hall where everybody would go, you know, for, for a meal and everything. They haven't made their way there yet. And so there's people, everyone, like, they, I'm, I didn't yell, but let's just say I was enthusiastic. <laughs> right? And so people kind of heard, but there was this dear lady. Her name's Sister Claire. And Sister Claire, uh, sweetheart, built like olive oil, Right? It was very tender. Um, she was walking by, and, and I say that because I'm just picturing like she just like wilted as she walked by. I, get your stuff and get out. And she just was like, ah. you know, and she could re- reason that I wasn't talking to her, which I'm sure was a relief to her, but. Um. So later of course I'm having to talk to the you know the elders and I talk to the deacons and I'm talking to everyone that I can think of like this is what happened this is why it happened and we had already been having conversations and nobody was like oh you shouldn't have done that or anything but I started thinking about sister Claire and I thought you know uh, I probably should follow up with her and just have a conversation with her just so you know so she's not confused so she's not hurt I mean I I don't know and so I did I, I reached out to her and I just explained the situation what had happened and, and um eventually she just said oh Jared, I, you know, I started thinking about that that afternoon, and I didn't know why you did what you did. I, you know, I wasn't sure what was happening in that moment. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, Jared's not the kind of person who yells at people. And so if, if he had to get agitated, um, he must have had a really good reason. And I was really encouraged by that, actually. Um, it was, but it was a good reminder to me um, that when everything's an exclamation point, right, nothing is, If you're the kind of person who's always arguing, always fighting, always nitpicking, people will tune you out. That's just what you do. And if you can't distinguish what's important, what's worth fighting over, and what's not, people just, yeah, that's just what he does or what she does. But if you're known for your peaceability, for your gentleness, the times that you need to speak up and take a stand will be that much more powerful. People will go, oh, there must be something to that. It's wrong to always be spoiling for a fight, but it's also wrong to be unwilling to fight for the gospel. Fleshly fighting disturbs peace, but Christian contending protects and preserves peace. If you're known for peace, the fights that you engage in will be worth fighting. If you're known for fighting, you'll always be fighting. But the peace of the good news is precious enough to protect in a church. This is why Liberty Baptist Church exercises church discipline Not because we want to micromanage or nitpick anybody. We want to protect the credibility of the gospel in this place. So when somebody is set on fleshliness, after multiple pleadings and warnings and prayers, and they continue, they make it resolved in their life to live like a condemned person. We have to call them back to the peaceability of the gospel. Because that's what a church is supposed to be centered around, the gospel. Verses 4-7 through show us the radical impact the grace of God has on us. How the power of God in Christ makes us new by fashioning us in Christ's very likeness. The gospel creates something precious in us and between us. So if we all by grace stop centering on ourselves and center on the gospel, we will see a relational newness between us. We'll see it in our churches. We'll see it in our church, in Liberty Baptist Church. And we'll be much better situated to bear witness to the kindness of God in the world if we do that. This culture is on a collision course with the consequences of its own moral chaos. And as more and more begin to crash, and they see evangelical churches, when they see Liberty Baptist Church as a place of peace and find hope and mercy, they'll begin to think, maybe there's something to this powerful God stuff. We have to make sure they see that. And not just a religious version of the fleshiness that already is leading them to despair. We make Christ look big when we walk in the peaceability of the spirit, not in the puniness of the flesh. We give credibility to the power of the gospel when we devote ourselves to the transformation that Christ has accomplished for us and in us and through us. With God's help, we can be the kind of countercultural community that looks different from the world, not because of our traditions or our customs, but because of our love our gentleness, our kindness, our peace. The renewed people of the church become, in the Holy Spirit, a new social order, distinct from the world. It shouldn't work the same in here as it does out there. The church is a peaceable culture. We can become we can become an epiphany to our community if we will walk in the spirit of our powerful Savior, giving him the glory he deserves. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to cherish it as we ought. Father, we thank you for this grace by which we have been saved. And we thank you that we are saved by faith, justified by faith, not by our works. This gives your son so much glory, and it gives us so much peace, knowing that we don't have to earn your approval and measure up to your holiness, that you give it freely to us. So help us to repent of our sin and trust in your son that we might know more and more his love and affection for us and walk in uh, more and more holiness before him. We pray all these things in his name, amen.